Good morning. If you would, take your copy of God's Word and open with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're continuing our way through the prologue to John's Gospel, and this morning we're going to look at verses 9 to 13. John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, and if you would, follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus, beginning in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's ask God to bless now the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray now for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that as we consider the word of God, that we would be encouraged in the truth, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted, that we, where we would be uh, built up, Father, where we are weak, that we would be strengthened, God. And that through all of this, we would hold fast to the truth by faith. Father, please keep me from error. Please grant your people discernment that they would know truth from falsehood and that they would hold fast to that truth until the day the Lord Jesus returns. And we pray this in his name, confident that you hear us. Amen. Light always reveals the true nature of things. Whatever, whatever the situation, whether good or bad, light always reveals truth. Often this is a good thing. Think about the little kid who is afraid of the dark. When his imagination gets away from him and the chair in the corner starts to become something scary, what can he do? He can turn on the light and see the truth. It's just a chair. Often it's a good thing that light reveals truth. Other times, however, light's revealing power is something that we try to avoid. Think of the thief who operates at night. He avoids the light because he doesn't want to be exposed. He wants his true motives to remain hidden. Whatever the situation, whether good or bad, light always reveals the true nature of things. And that idea, friends, captures the point of our passage this morning in John's Gospel. Light reveals truth. You may remember from verse 5 last week how the light shines in the darkness, John said. The light, we learned, is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the darkness is the realm of this fallen world, a world that is mired in unbelief and sin. This is why the Lord Jesus has come, to shine His life-giving light in the darkness. And the good news is that the darkness has not overcome the light. That was verse 5. In today's passage, the image shifts a little bit. The perspective changes. Now, John teaches us what happens when the light shines in the darkness. More specifically, John tells us how the light of Christ always reveals the true nature of things. Whether good or bad. These verses show us how the light of Christ 
reveals what is true about us, about humanity, but also what is true about God, particularly as He relates to us as His children through the gospel. Light always reveals truth, and that's true of the gospel. In that sense, today's passage expands on the point of verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and now John shows us what the light of Christ reveals, whether good or bad. In terms of an outline then, we're going to consider two ways the light of Christ works in this world. Two, two ways in which Christ's coming reveals the true nature of things, both about us and about God. And then we're going to conclude with how we ought to respond to what the light reveals. Let's start then in verses 9 to 11 with the first way the light of Christ works in this world. The true light exposes humanity's rebellion. The true light exposes humanity's rebellion. John picks up from verse 5 and he continues to describe Christ's role and mission in coming into this world. Listen again, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, we've already seen Christ identified with the light, but here in verse 9, John adds to the picture. Here, Christ is called the true light. That adjective is key, friends, but it's important that we understand why. John is not necessarily drawing a contrast between true and false. Rather, his point is that true means ultimate or final in this context. Rather than true versus false, it's true in an ultimate or final or complete sense. Think of how often Jesus applies this adjective to himself. He is the true bread that comes down from heaven. He is the true light. It's not true versus false, but true in an ultimate sense. And that's the idea here in verse 9. Christ is the true light... In that he is the final revelation of God. He is the ultimate revelation of the Father. We're going to focus on this more next week, but it's important to touch on it today. Where is the true knowledge of God found? Only in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is the true way or the final way, the only way to spiritual life found? In the Son. The Lord Jesus, who is the true light that has come into the world. This is what John means when he says that the true light gives light to everyone. You see that last phrase in verse 9? It gives light to everyone. This is important. John is not saying that Christ gives light to everyone in the same way. He's not affirming some kind of universalism. Rather, John's point has to do with the uniqueness or the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. There is no one else who reveals God in an ultimate or final sense. Only the Word who became flesh. So if anyone is going to know the truth about God, he must do so only through this true light. Who is the Lord Jesus. He's the true, ultimate, final revelation of God. I want to pause here and think about the implication of what John writes, particularly as it relates to you and me and to people out there on the street that you meet. Look again at that last phrase in verse 9. The true light was coming into the world. 
Now, if the light was coming into the world, what does that say about us? It says that we are in the dark, that we need illumination, and that we cannot provide that illumination for ourselves. To say it a different way, the true light, the true knowledge of God does not come from within ourselves. Apart from Christ, we reside in darkness. We are not the source of truth. By nature, we cannot illuminate ourselves. If sinners like us are to ever see the truth, it will have to be because light comes from outside of us and opens our eyes to see. We are not our own source of light. We are not the source of truth. Understand, friends, this cuts entirely against the grain of nearly everything you hear in our postmodern world. In our world, everyone is encouraged to seek their own truth, even though that's a nonsensical phrase. Everyone is encouraged to seek their own truth as though truth were a customizable commodity that you can pick what version of that you like the most. And where does our world say that you ought to begin your search for truth? Inside yourself. Just look inside and find your truth and and be who you are as though we were the source of illumination and insight. But friends, nothing could be further from the actual truth. The biblical worldview is very clear. We are not autonomous beings capable of creating our own truth. We cannot illuminate our own minds. By nature, we are in the dark. And left to ourselves, we don't find more truth. We go deeper in darkness. Indeed, that's the entire reason why Christ has come, according to verse 9. Because we need the light to come into the world. To shine from outside and reveal truth to us. Or else we will remain where we are, which is lost. And in the dark. So if you're here this morning and, and you are not a Christian, this is something that we want to be very clear with you about. Ultimately, you need the truth. You may even know that you need the truth. But here's the key. That truth cannot come from inside of yourself. It has to come from outside of you. From a source of authority and truthfulness that cannot be shaken. And that means what you need the most, if you're not a Christian, what you need the most today is the Word of God. That's why our church preaches through books of the Bible. That's why we read the Bible in the service and sing songs that are full of biblical truth. Because what do we most need in this world? We need the Word of God. So before we go any further, if you're not a Christian this morning, I pray that you would hear this. Don't look inside for the solution to your problem. Don't think you can be your own source of truth. That's foolishness, friend. The only place to find truth, ultimate, final truth, is in God's word as it reveals Jesus Christ. Without the true light of Christ, we're lost. We need the word of God. Now, you might think that this assessment of human nature is too bleak. Perhaps you think that I'm overstating the case. If so, then look at verse 10, where John confirms 
this diagnosis. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Friends, that verse describes nothing less than humanity's complete alienation from God. John is crystal clear. Everything belongs to the Son. For the Son is the one through whom all things were made. We've seen that truth the last two weeks, haven't we? And yet, when God sent His Son into this world, when He came into His own things, His own realm, humanity did not know Him. Understand, this is more than mere ignorance. This is rejection. This is a willing refusal to submit to the one who has all authority. And this is the natural state of every person born into this dark world. We are alienated from God. We do not know Him. And even when the light of the sun shines in the darkness, people do not see it. Instead of submitting to the Son, they ignore Him. Instead of responding to the light of God's Word, they prefer the darkness. Do you sense the weight of this? Imagine a king returning to his kingdom and his subjects refusing to acknowledge him. That's more than ignorance, isn't it? That's rebellion. That's hostility. That reveals alienation. And that's precisely what the light of Christ reveals about humanity in its natural state. We are not the source of our own truth. We are not our own light. But even worse, we are also in rebellion against the true light. That's what the coming of the true light reveals about us. By nature, humanity loves darkness. And if we had any doubt about the dire situation of the human race, verse 11 provides further illustration. Look at verse 11 and listen to the shift that happens. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Most likely, John refers here to Jesus' rejection at the hands of his own people, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. Remember, Jesus is Israel's Messiah. It was the Old Testament scriptures that promised his coming, and it was the Old Testament prophets who anticipated his, his arrival. So when Jesus comes in his incarnation, when the Son of God comes in his incarnation, he comes to the nation of Israel. He comes as the seed of Abraham, the heir to David's throne. And yet, Israel rejects her Messiah. The nation refuses to believe in her king or to receive her king. Abraham's physical descendants largely reject the one who brings Abraham's blessing. In fact, this is what John is going to narrate through chapters 1 through 12. Over and over, time after time, the Jews oppose and reject Jesus so that the turning point, you might say, is chapter 13, where Jesus' disciples become the, the core of his new covenant people. By and large, Israel rejects her Messiah. And we, need, and we need to be upfront about this. Look in verse 11, that phrase, did not receive him. That refers to more than a lack of hospitality. 
It's not simply that the the Jewish nation was rude or unkind to Jesus. It's that they rejected him utterly and completely and then they killed him. They heard his teaching and they refused to believe it. They saw his miracles and they attributed them to Satan. They saw him raise the dead and their conclusion was, let's kill him too. When faced with God in the flesh, how did Israel respond? Not with faith, with rejection. But that's not only true of the Jewish nation in John, friends. That's true of each person born into this world. Verse 11 refers specifically to the people of Jesus' day who witnessed his ministry, but their response is illustrative of human nature. Please don't miss that. Verse 11 is not mere history. We should not read verse 11 and think, whoo, man, I'm glad that I didn't live back then, and I'm glad that I didn't participate in this rejection of the Messiah. That's the wrong way to read verse 11. That misses the point. The point of verse 11 is not solely historical or informative. Verse 11 is also saying something about humanity down through the ages. This is what the light of Christ reveals about us. That we are in the dark. That we refuse to see the truth. And that we are in rebellion against the one who made us. What we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the, the doctrine of total depravity which is mankind's condition by nature. This doctrine does not mean that every person is as bad as he or she could be. Rather, it means that our entire nature, our entire being has been corrupted by sin. Our thoughts, our motives, our actions, and our capabilities. And that's what verses 9 to 11 describe. Mankind's condition. The coming of Christ is like light shining in the darkness. And what that light reveals, first of all, is that humanity is in rebellion against God. Now somebody is probably thinking, why are we talking about this? It's Christmas time, and this is depressing. Do I have to believe the bad news in order to understand Christianity? And the answer, friends, is yes, you do. Before you get to the good news of the gospel, you first have to understand the bad news. And think about it this way. Can you, can you see the stars in daytime? No, you can't, because the brightness of the sun obscures the light of stars. Where do you see the beauty of a thousand stars shining brightly? Only against the backdrop of darkness. Only against the backdrop of the night. In fact, the darker the night, the brighter the stars appear. And so it is with the gospel, brothers and sisters. If we aren't clear on humanity's desperate condition, the gospel will always seem like little more than an upgrade from God. I'm convinced that this is how a lot of people view the gospel. Like God's neat upgrade. Like, like God's software update to human nature. Like, sure, I know that on my own I'm not the best version of myself, but then God comes and he makes me the best version of me. Friends, that's not the gospel. That's not what the gospel 
is. In fact, that's not the gospel at all. In order for the gospel to shine in all of its brightness, we have to be clear on our condition. We have to be clear on our need. If you want to see the good news, you've got to start with the bad news. That we are rebels against God. That we reject the gospel because we love darkness. This is part of what the light of Christ reveals. His coming into this world exposes our rebellion. What's the remedy for this desperate state of things? Darkness, rebellion, depravity. What could possibly overcome that situation? That's where we turn in verses 12 and 13. Praise God that the chapter doesn't end in verse 11. Here we see the second way that the light of Christ works. The true light reveals the Father's grace. This is the second way that the light of Christ works. The true light reveals the Father's grace. Right away, what should get your attention in verse 12 is the sudden change. Listen again, we're going to start in verse 11 and and catch the dramatic shift that happens in verse 12. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's staggering, isn't it? In the span of two verses, we've gone from alienated to adopted. We've gone from darkness to light. We've gone from outside God's family to heirs with Christ, the Son of God. That's staggering. The darkness has not overcome the light, verse 5. And here we see proof of that. All who did receive him. There are some who receive the light. And in doing so, Christ bestows on them the privilege of becoming children of God. Let's think about that phrase for just a moment. What does it mean to be children of God? The fact that this is a privilege that is bestowed upon you should clue us into the fact that not everyone is God's child, at least not in the way that John means in verse 12. There are some who remain in the darkness. To be a child of God is a privilege that has to be given to you. Still, what does that phrase mean, children of God? Well, a full answer to that question is beyond the scope of of this sermon. For we're talking here about the doctrine of adoption. J.I. Packer, in his excellent book, Knowing God, which I commend to you, says that adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel, higher even than justification. And I'm inclined to agree with him because it's probably not wise to disagree with him on this. Disagree with him on baptism. Not this. We could spend a long time reflecting on this truth that believers in Christ are counted as children of God. It's a staggering thought. For our purposes, though, perhaps we can think about children of God with just two words. Here's the short version What does it mean to be a child of God? Think in two words identity and inheritance. Identity and inheritance. To be a child of God, according to the New Testament, means you receive a new identity. 
You go from being a rebel against God to being a son of God. You go from knowing God only as your judge to having him fully as your father. You go from receiving only his wrath to receiving only his love. In short, your identity fundamentally changes. You're not a rebel, you're a son. And that identity cannot change again. Why can that identity not change again? Because it's an identity that you receive in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, the only way that you stop being a son of God is if the Lord Jesus stops being the son of God. And that will never happen. He remains the son forever. And because you are united to him by faith, his identity is given to you. The privileges of sonship are bestowed upon you. It's not rooted in your performance. It's rooted in the Son. Along with that, to be a child of God means you receive an inheritance with Christ. The New Testament is very clear that the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to his people. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, the one through whom the covenant blessings are given. Galatians 3, Jesus is the heir to David's throne, the one who receives dominion over God's kingdom, and the one whose reign will endure forever. Acts 2 and Romans 1, Jesus is the final sacrifice through whom the new covenant is established. Hebrews chapter 9, all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He fulfills all of them. Now, think of those fulfilled promises as an inheritance from a father to his son. Those promises are richer than any earthly treasure. They endure for all time. They cannot be broken. It's an eternally valuable inheritance, in other words. And John says in verse 12 that this rich inheritance, this eternally valuable inheritance is given through Jesus Christ. Those who belong to Christ, become children of God, and as God's children, they receive all of those fulfilled promises as though they were their own. So the Christian can say, I receive the blessing promised to Abraham, not because I deserve it, but because I belong to Christ, who is the offspring of Abraham. The Christian can say, I am a citizen of God's eternal kingdom. Where David's son, the Messiah, reigns. Not because I earned my citizenship, but because I belong to Christ, the son of David, the king. Do you see that connection between Christ and blessing? That's part of what John means when he says, Those who receive Christ become children of God. It means that you are counted as God's son, you receive a new identity, and you are given the inheritance of the Lord Jesus through faith in his name. Now, we've only scratched the surface of what it means to be children of God. The doctrine of adoption is unthinkably wonderful. There's so much more that we could say at this point. But our text confronts us with a question that we absolutely have to answer. If we don't answer this question today before we leave, then we have not done a faithful job of expositing God's word. Here's the question. How do sinners like us Become children of God. 
If the world is in rebellion against God, and if sinners are blinded by the darkness, if we love the darkness more than the light, how does anyone ever come to be a child of God? How does this happen? The answer is verse 13. Look at verse 13 and listen to this majestic declaration of grace. He gave the right to become children of God, here it comes, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How does a sinner become a child of God? Answer, grace and nothing but grace. That's the only way. In fact, friends, verse 13 is one of the clearest New Testament passages on God's initiative in saving a people for himself. John could not be more plain at this point. How does a person become a child of God? Well, it's not by physical descent. That's what John means when he says, not of blood, nor of the will of man. Just because you were born to an Israelite family does not make you a child of God's covenant. Just because your parents were believers doesn't mean that you are in the kingdom. It's not by physical lineage. And neither is it by your own effort or your own decision. That's what John means when he says, nor of the will of man. I want you to see it in the Bible. You see that? It's not by the will of man. It's not by your own effort or your own decision. John's point is that you cannot make yourself a child of God. Think about your own physical birth. I know that no one remembers that, but let's pretend that we do. Think about your own physical birth. Did you decide which family you would be born into? Nope, you didn't. Did you decide the day that you would be born? No, you didn't. It was not your will that brought you into this world. In the same way, when it comes to the children of God, John says the initiative does not lie with you and me. Okay, well then where does the initiative reside? Again, look at the text. Verse 13. They were born of God, John says. By His grace, God grants new life to sinners. Uniting them to Christ by His faith. By faith. By His grace, God brings forth children for His own glory. By His grace, God bestows on sinners like us the privilege of adoption, where we receive a new identity and an eternal inheritance. Friends, this is the only hope for sinners who are mired and trapped in the darkness of sin and in the rebellion of this world. The only hope is that God, for His own glory, is gracious to people who would never deserve His grace. That's the only way that someone becomes a child Of God. The true light reveals the Father's grace. How should we respond? How is this marvelous grace of God manifested in the lives of those whom He calls to Himself? How? That's where I want to end. One final reflection. The true light is received by faith in Christ. This is how we respond. The true light is received by faith in Christ. Look back to verse 12. And notice the emphasis that John places on faith in Christ. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become 
children of God. John is defining faith in those two clauses there. What does it mean to receive the true light? It means that you believe in his name. Understand in scripture the concept of name is not simply what we use to identify someone. Christ's name is the totality of his person. Christ's name is the full declaration of the truth regarding who he is and what he has come to do. So in verse 12, to believe in Christ's name is to believe the gospel. It is to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God in human flesh. It is to believe that he was conceived in a virgin's womb and born in David's city in accordance with God's word. It's to believe that this Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, fulfilling the law of God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's to believe that despite Jesus' righteousness, he was rejected by men, crucified on a cursed tree as a lawbreaker, and then buried in a borrowed tomb. It, was, it is to believe most of all that he did not stay dead, but rose again on the third day, thereby vindicating his righteousness, destroying death, and inaugurating God's kingdom. It's to believe that this same Jesus ascended again to the Father's right hand, where he ever lives to make intercession for his church. And it's to believe that this same Jesus is coming again soon to judge the living and the dead. That's what it means to believe in his name. It's to stake your life, everything you have, on this man Jesus. As that old hymn says, I grew up in a old Southern Baptist, old missionary Baptist church, actually. So sometimes I think of hymns when I'm reading the Bible. Think of that old hymn. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. The true light is received only by faith in Christ. Somebody's going to be asking right now, so does my faith in Christ bring about God's grace or does God's grace lead me to believe in Christ? Which one is it, Pastor? That's a good question. I'm glad that you asked it. I think you can discern the answer. If my faith brings about God's grace, then what happens to grace? It disappears. Because if I do anything to earn God's grace, then grace becomes merit and the glory of the gospel is tarnished and perhaps even lost. Instead, this passage and countless other passages is telling us that God, by His grace, calls sinners to new life so that by His grace we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus' name for salvation. That's the good news, brothers and sisters. It's that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And what that means this morning is that our response must be to bank everything on Jesus Christ. I got one sermon. And this is it. We have to bank everything on Jesus Christ to trust Him and Him alone for the salvation of our souls. If you're not a Christian today, if you do not know the Lord Jesus by faith, I pray that God, by His grace, would open your eyes to see the good news of the gospel. I pray that you would turn from your sin and believe in Christ alone for the salvation of your soul. This is not, this is not something a church can do for you. It's not something that your parents can do for you. It's something that God must do 
by His grace through His Spirit. And so we pray, God, that You would open eyes and bring us to faith. On the authority of God's Word, if you're not a Christian this morning, there is salvation only in Christ. So won't you turn to Him today and believe? For those who are believers this morning, the response is quite the same. On the authority of God's word, we renew our confidence in Jesus Christ. And then we join praise to faith, giving glory to God in Christ. I pray, oh how I pray, that no matter how long you've been a Christian, today you will be in awe of God's grace that brought you out of rebellion and into new life by faith in his son. It's a good thing to pray for yourself and for our church that we would never get bored of the gospel. That day by day, we would be stunned into worship by a God who redeems rebels and makes them his own sons by grace through faith. Light always reveals the true nature of things, whether for good or bad. That's true of the gospel, as we've seen this morning. The light of Christ exposes our rebellion, but praise God, the passage doesn't stop with verse 11. The light also reveals God's grace calling us to believe. So may God make us deeply joyful that we too would be called children of God. And so we are. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's an unspeakable privilege to come into your presence through the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, how we pray, Father, that we would never grow tired of the gospel. Oh, how we pray that every day we would be stunned into worship that you, the one whom we had defied, would take the initiative to save us and make us your own children giving us a new identity and an inheritance with your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, please come and help our church to rejoice deeply in the good news of the gospel. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bear fruit from your word now in our lives, leading, Father, to faith and obedience, all for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.